chapter 5, Matthew chapter 5, as we are again uh, currently doing our studies in the life of Christ, and we're currently focusing on the Sermon on the Mount, and uh, we're going to look at verses 21 through 30 that, that deals with murder and adultery in the heart. When the Jews came back from their captivity in Babylon, the common people had forgotten their own language. They couldn't read the Bible anymore in their original Hebrew. So the scribes and the rabbis controlled the teaching of the scriptures instead of translating the scriptures into Chaldee or Aramaic in order to help the people read the scriptures. Anybody who wanted to know what the Bible said had to go to the scribes and the rabbis. But they handled the scriptures to suit themselves. So the people who listened to the Sermon on the Mount, they had heard the law. But they had never read it for themselves. So they were many times unable to know the difference between what the Bible said and what the rabbis said that it said. Between the pure word of God and the adulterated uh, traditions and commentaries also of the religious leaders. They would hear what was said. Jesus told them what it said. He was the word. The law had been so terribly corrupted by the rabbi's interpretation. But Jesus, with his authoritative, but I say to you, did away with the you have heard, that is their rubbish of centuries. This is the first of six important Old Testament laws that Jesus took and interpreted for them, uh, for his people in the light of the new life that he came to give. But we're only going to look at uh, two of them this morning. Jesus made a necessary change without changing God's standards. Jesus dealt with the attitudes and the intents of the heart, not just the outward physical act itself. The Pharisee said that the righteousness, that righteousness consisted of doing and not doing certain things. But Jesus said it centered on in the why they weren't or were done. That is the attitudes of the heart. Why weren't these things done or why were they done? What was your attitude? What was your reason for doing them? That is what Jesus is getting to. And it's the same with sin. The Pharisees had a list of outward behaviors that were sinful. But Jesus explained that sin came from the attitudes of the heart. In other words, why we did it. Why we do what we do. Anger is the first one that Jesus deals with here. Anger is murder in the heart. And then secondly, lust. Lust is adultery in the heart. And the person who says that he lives by the Sermon on the Mount may not realize that the Sermon on the Mount is a lot harder to keep than the original Ten Commandments. Now, in the contrast that we're going to look at today, they begin with, you have heard. Then Jesus said, but I say to you. And he shows the contrast between what the scribes and the Pharisees said and what Jesus said. Now, in all of these contrasts that Jesus was making to his teaching, it wasn't against what Moses taught, but what the Pharisees and scribes taught. It's true that several of the scribes and Pharisees' teachings seem to be the same as what Moses taught. But in the follow-up statements of Jesus' teaching, Jesus makes it clear that the teaching of the scribes and the Pharisees about that particular truth that Moses taught was perverted in some way or another by the scribes and the Pharisees. 
So Jesus didn't have a problem with what Moses taught. Jesus' argument wasn't with what Moses taught. Jesus' argument was with the scribes and the Pharisees who so badly twisted the truth of the scriptures that they taught to the people. And the problem still exists today. There is still a contrast to a lot of Christ's teaching today, even in many churches. And that's why over and over again you've heard why we encourage you to know the Bible. So you'll know what the Bible says. So nobody come up and say, hey, well, you know, this is what the Bible says. And no, okay, well, that's, you know, it's what he says. You need to know. You need to know for yourself so that nobody can, you know, like the scribes and the Pharisees come along and say, well, you know, this is what it says. No, this is what Jesus says. This is what the Bible says. So let's begin now with verses 21 through 26. And see what Jesus says here. He says, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whoever says to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. But whoever says you fool shall be in danger of the hellfire. Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar... And there you remember that your brother has something against you. Leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. First, be reconciled to your brother. Then come and offer your gift. Notice that reconciling with your brother takes priority priority even over worship. Verse 25. Agree with your adversary quickly. In other In other words, make amends with him. While you are on the way with him, lest your adversary deliver you to the judge. And the judge hand you over to the officer, and you be thrown into prison. Assuredly, I say to you, you will by no means get out of there till you have paid the last penny. Man's first crime was murder, back in Genesis. And there we read where Cain killed his brother Abel. Since that day, murder has been on the rise more than ever before. Every day, every day, you hear about somebody or or, or groups of people or, you know, more than one being murdered. The consequence for murder was death. Capital punishment. Uh, That's where, you know, we have capital punishment. It originated from the scriptures. Here the Lord quoted the law, not as given by Moses. You know, in Exodus 20, 13, um, uh, where it said, you shall not murder, where the sin of murder is set forth or laid out as a crime against the creator. But Jesus taught it as it was taught by the scribes. He's talking about as the scribes and the the Pharisees taught it, which he was against. Okay, they didn't teach it like Moses, you shall not commit murder. Uh, uh, But it was uh, they did just on the outside, the physical murder. But Jesus is coming against the scribes and the Pharisees. Again, it was just the outward act to them. The commandment is against, when it says, thou shalt not murder, that commandment is against the intentional killing of another human for personally personal reasons, whatever those reasons might be. You see, the scribes and the Pharisees reduced the crime of murder, okay, uh, to the physical act itself just the outward act, something that was to be handled by earthly courts alone. But in doing so, they left the impression that only the outward act was sinful, and, that, and by doing that, they removed the fear of God's judgment in the life to come. So Jesus immediately restored the commandment, thou shalt not kill, to its original intent. 
the first effect of Jesus' words is to destroy the misconception of self-righteousness. Like a lot of people throughout history, the scribes and the Pharisees thought that if there was any sin that they were clearly not guilty of, it was murder. Whatever else they may have done, at least they had never committed murder. And, and maybe you have, uh, I don't know, but I know throughout the years and, and witnessing some people and you know, t- tell them about they need Christ, they'll say, well, you know, I'm a good person. You know, I don't, I've never stealed. I, I don't murder. Uh, and so, you know, in their estimation, they're a candidate for heaven. Then Jesus traced murder, though, and here's where it gets to the nitty gritty. Jesus traced murder to its source or motive, anger. You see, the anger is what produces the murder. And Jesus pointed out it's as great a sin as the murder itself. Jesus didn't let, didn't, didn't let murder, uh, you know, uh, didn't... Uh, uh, you know, just say that the outward act was what was what was wrong. He said it was the inner act. You see, it's anger that led to murder. We read in Psalm 37, 7, the psalmist said, cease from anger and forsake wrath. And he said, do not fret. And he said, here's why. It only causes harm. In other words, stop being angry. Turn from your rage And don't lose your temper because it only leads to harm. And how many times has maybe many of us experienced we've gotten so angry that we've done something either through words or physical acts that, that, man, we regret. And and many times you you can't take back. And it's done irreversible, irreversible damage. Now, here's the thing. Because God's word says cease from anger, which is a command, you can do that. You know, people with anger problems, well, I can't help it. I just, you know, we can, and especially as believers. If God commands it, that means we can do it. You know, God's words commands us to stop being angry. That means it's possible to do so with his help. Then the Lord pointed to three levels of hatred, which is an extension of anger. They're all a part of anger. That puts a person at risk, though, of judgment for breaking the sixth commandment. Thou shalt not murder. So the first level of hatred, Jesus said here, is anger without a cause. In other words, you know, there are causes for us to be angry, and there are causes where we shouldn't be angry. Now, you know, causes, uh, when, when you saw Jesus, when he was angry, it was never because something was done to him. It was never because he was mistreated or maligned or lied about. It's when he saw something being done wrong uh, by man towards his fellow man. Then Jesus got angry. So there, there are, you know, there is righteous indignation where we do have, you know, a cause to be angry. But again, never towards ourselves. But when we see again, you know, our, our fellow man being treated badly by fellow man, or again, uh, the things that you know uh, bring, you know. Uh, Dishonored to our Lord God. But again, Paul said, if we're never to stay angry, we're not to let the sun go down on our anger. We need to get rid of it right away. And that's, that's where the danger lies when we hold on to that anger. So again, anger without a cause. This means to hold inward resentment. It means to hold a grudge towards another person. Jesus said, this puts you there in verse 22. He said, in danger of the judgment this refers to the lower court at that time. The council, that would be the council of three in a local synagogue who had jurisdiction over these lesser offenses. 
Then the second level of hatred that's connected to anger is demonstrated by that outward expression of dislike. One who says, notice, raka. One who says raka, the, the word raka, it conveys the idea of scorn, disdain, and contempt. If you have this, <clears throat> this anger, this kind of anger towards a brother, idea of scorn, disdain, or, or content, discontent. Jesus said that the man who allows his motions to carry him away is in danger of the council. Now, the danger of the council refers to the Supreme Court, if you will, or the Sanhedrin. Then there was the third level of hatred connected to anger, which resulted in an even stronger expression of dislike. When you call somebody a fool, you fool. That is to call a man a reprobate or a rebel. And this is a serious charge. Now, the word translated fool here that Jesus is talking about is related to the Hebrew word moros, where we get our English word moron. It's a term that was deeply embedded in the Jewish mind. And it stayed there even after the language became Aramaic. And here's why. There was an unforgettable connection with a sad but significant occasion in Moses' life when he spoke rashly with his lips. Remember, he said to the, to the, to the people when they, when they were uh, wanting water and he, and he beat the rock and he was so angry with them. He said, here now, you rebels. The word rebels was the same as morose. So, G, so, so Moses himself had, had this, 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 this deep, this, 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 this reprobate. Uh, there were a reprobate, there were a rebel, a rebel. There was a serious charge. And so he was using a very strong term when he got angry with, with these folks who wanted water. And, and, and you know, he, he called them rebels. He said, must we bring water for you out of this rock? And for Moses, his little temper tantrum there, Moses wasn't allowed to enter into the promised land. God judged him for that, but in that way, he couldn't, he couldn't lead him into the promised land. Jesus said, to speak this way puts you in danger of hellfire which is the worst of, of the three levels. Literally, the reference was to the fiery valley of Hinnom that was just outside the city of Jerusalem where the, where the city trash was dumped and burned and also bodies of criminals were dumped there and burned. So this, th there was no greater shame that, that could be imagined by a Jew than to be cremated here and in that way in that place. So Jesus took three common uh, phases of Jewish legal procedure the lower court, the supreme court, and then the fires of Hinnom, and he gave them a deeper significance. So in terms of the new spiritual significance that Jesus raised those levels to, Jesus was saying that if we become angry, we are in instant danger. We're in instant danger. Now, we're not yet called into that judgment. If we do you know, say these terms and use these terms, we might not be called into the judgment at the moment, but we are in danger of it. We're on the road that leads there. And if we use a term of contempt in speaking to another person, we'll have to deal with a higher court. If we speak the ultimate insult, we're in danger of the ultimate punishment, being cast out of the kingdom to the place where trash is burned. Jesus stressed that we are in danger when we allow anger to get the best of us. Now, Jesus didn't deal with the actual physical sin of murder. Why? Because he didn't have to. Because even the scribes and the Pharisees agreed on capital punishment for murder. What Jesus was doing here, he was going to the source of murder. 
He was look at the, looking at the underlying source that brought murder about. Because if we are never angry, we will never kill. So Jesus made anger itself a punishable offense. The meaning is simple here. We are to get right with those that we have wronged. Those who have something against us. Those that we've been angry with. Reconciliation is so important that Jesus said it has to even take priority over the worship of God. Jesus said, if you remember that, that somebody has something against you, leave your gift at the altar and go reconcile with that person. Notice, he said, if somebody has something against you, okay, he, he says, then, then you go make amends. He's not looking at who's at fault. He didn't say, you know what, well, you know you're angry with your brother, go make amends. If somebody has something against you, he says, you go make amends with them. Jesus isn't interested in who's at fault. He's interested in making it right. That's the priority. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14 says, Pursue peace with all people and holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Now, to pursue, to pursue peace with all men, this means that you are to quickly go and make this happen. The first high priority goal is peace with all. Because you see, getting right with men is part of becoming holy. How can you claim holiness when I, you're angry at somebody? Jesus took his illustration from the law of the trespass offering. And that is when a person brought a trespass offering to the Lord, that person was required, first of all, to go and to make things right with the one that he had wronged. If that person, if the one that they had wronged, if he had stolen something, that guy had to go back and give the full amount to that person that he stole it from, plus an additional 20%, according to the law in Leviticus 5.16. In the Sermon on the Mount, the Lord applied this principle to all worship. You see, we cannot expect God's blessing or expect Him to accept our offerings if we've insulted somebody and we haven't done all that we can to make it right. It's like coming in here and raising our hands and praising God and, and worshiping God and expecting God to accept our worship. But if we have anger in our heart with somebody in the church or, or whoever it might be and we're holding a grudge and we're angry, that's not acceptable worship. He doesn't accept that worship. He can't accept that worship until we are right with all men. Paul said in Romans 12, 18, If it is possible, as much as depends upon you, live peaceably with all men. In other words, God says you are to do everything possible in your power to make things right with other people. Now, they may not want to make it right with you. They may, don't, they may not care about you. I don't care if you say you're sorry, you did me, I don't care, and that whatever... Ever. Now, you can't change their minds. You can't make them make things right between you two. But you have done what God has asked you to do. You have done all that was possible within your means and power to make things right. That means you've done what God needs to do. You're okay. That person wants to stay angry. Now, they have to deal with God. It's between them and God. Because there are those that just don't care. So again, as much as it depends upon you, Paul said, you go and you live peaceably with all men. And then the Lord used an illustration from Roman law, which, of course, Roman law took priority over Jewish law in Palestine during those days. On the way to a hearing, both parties in, that were involved in a dispute, 
they could settle their, their case out of court, which by far was a, a, a more sensible thing to do. Proverbs 25, 8 even tells us, don't be in a hurry to go to court. Work out things with your neighbor. Work out things with your neighbor. You and them work it out. You and them talk it over. You and them come to a settlement. Because here's what would happen in biblical times. As soon as that case, as soon as your case was taken to the judges and it was turned over and now it was in the judge's hand, no more friendly agreement was possible between you and that person because now both parties, you know, they had to settle for whatever the judge decided to do. And that may not work out what's best for you. You see, it may not work out as good as well as you expected it to. And laws are always tricky. They can go either way. You may think, you know what, I got it all going my way and you get in there. And I, I, probably depends on who has the better lawyer. It may not go your way. It may not come out really, really bad for you. And that's why the Bible says, don't be in a hurry to go to court. Work things out with a person that you have something. Talk with them. Come to a settlement if you can. And if not, and if it's a serious case, then that's what the courts are for. But we should be able to, we should be able to work things out between one another. Again, because, again, the laws are very tricky. And, again, uh, they can go either way. That's why we need to uh, be advised to, to try to avoid them at all costs. That is, going to court. Jesus went further and implied that we should make things right with people who think they have been injured by us. Now, there are those who think, you know, oh, we've, did, we've done something and they've wronged us. And, and though we know we're innocent. And this is what verse 23 is saying. And I just said earlier is that, you know, if, if somebody thinks they've been wronged by you and you know you're innocent, you still go and make it right with them. And like I said, God isn't interested in who's at fault. He just wants the issue to be subtle. This illustration is a picture of sin against another person in our everyday life that we have a chance to settle disputes with and to make amends with them so that we can avoid having to face a sentence from the heavenly judge. The exact penalty here named at the end, notice verse 26, assuredly. Oh, let's look at verse 23. Agree with your, I'm sorry, 25. Agree with your adversary quickly while you are on the way with him lest your adversary deliver you to the judge and the judge hand you over to the officer and you be thrown into prison. Assuredly, I say to you, you will by no means get out of there till you have paid the last penny. Now, we're not sure on, uh, again, the, uh, the, the exact penalty that Jesus is referring to here. It's not made clear. But being thrown in, into prison and not being able to get out until the debt is fully paid is a likeness of God's punishment. So, in fin finishing up with the, uh, the, the sin of anger, the basic teaching is clear and it's unmistakable. That is, we are to make every effort without delay to do it as soon as possible. Make our relationship right with our brother before our relationship can be right with God. And therefore, we can avoid chastening. In the fullest sense, because no one ever fully has right attitudes towards one another, no worship is acceptable. So everything that Jesus teaches in this passage, as in the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, is to show us the absolute perfect standard of God's righteousness and the absolutely impossible, ta or, uh, the possible, uh, task of us meeting that standard on our own power. 
Jesus destroys the idea of self-righteousness in order to drive us to his righteousness, which is alone the only righteousness that's acceptable to God. Now let's look at verses 27 through 30, dealing with the question of, uh, of lust. Jesus said, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it far from you. For it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you. For it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. Now, the Jewish teachers had a customary phrase to start off their teaching. The typical phrase of the prophet of God was, thus says the Lord. The typical phrase of the scribes and the Pharisees was, there is a teaching that says. The Lord's typical phrase, Jesus' typical phrase was this, I say to you. And that was often connected to verily, verily, or truly, truly, I say to you. The prophets they drew upon God's authority. The rabbis, they drew upon this person or that person, whoever was a well-known scholar at the time. They would draw upon that person and say, that person says, Jesus drew from his own authority. Jesus quoted the law in order to restate it and to lift the law to a higher ground. And it was on his authority as the word made flesh. Jesus, the Word was made flesh. He is Christ, the living Word. Based, so it's based upon His authority. Now, the Lord spoke with His customary authority about the sacredness of marriage. God instituted marriage. He officiated at the first wedding. He instituted marriage before He instituted the church and government. And the reason for the Lord's teaching about marriage was because of the prevailing and immorality of the permissiveness, I should say, and the immorality of his day. And, and it's, it's, it's much, much like it is today, most likely even worse, the permissiveness and the immorality today regarding marriage. And among the Jews, there were two men that people listened to in that day who interpreted the Moses mosaic teaching on divorce there was the teaching of Shammai and there was the teaching of Hillel now the school of Shammai they followed the prophet Malachi who said and and they stuck to it down through the centuries where God said I hate divorce the old King James says putting away I hate putting away which is I hate divorce God said his own words I hate divorce and Shammai stuck to that down through the centuries. Now, Hillel's school was very liberal when it came to marriage. And they taught, Hillel taught, that a man could divorce his wife for almost any reason he found. If she displeased her in any way, he could divorce her, while the woman had no rights at all. Jewish divorce laws, according to Hillel's interpretation, were one-sided and they were chauvinistic. The Greeks, they expected a respectable woman to live in seclusion, to be, seen, to be seen on the streets, not alone, or I'm sorry, yeah, not alone, they couldn't be on the streets alone, or take part in a social life. A Greek man demanded absolute moral purity in his wife, but he, he didn't see anything wrong about being as immoral as he wanted. 
If he wanted to divorce his wife for any reason, he could do it. All he had to do was divorce her, dismiss her in front of a couple of people or a couple of witnesses and return her dowry. Now, the Romans, on the other hand, they started out well. Their religion and their society was originally founded on the home and on the authority of the father in the home. And for 500 years, divorce was basically unheard of uh, in their time, and harlots were looked on with contempt. Then Rome conquered Greece militarily, but Greece got back at them by taking them down morally. Rome's contact with the Grecian culture reduced marriage in, in, in Rome to moral pollution. So this is the background for why Jesus was speaking with this authority when he said, but I say to you, the Mosaic law was very clear, thou shalt not commit adultery. What exactly is adultery? What is exactly fornication? In the Bible, adultery usually means the act of a married person having sexual relationships with somebody that's not his or her married partner. Fornication is the word the Bible uses to describe the sexual act between unmarried people. But sometimes in the Bible and even more often in society, the word adultery applies to all sexual relations with one that is not his or her marriage partner, regardless of whether the people involved are married or not. So you see, in the spirit of which Jesus speaks here in these contrasts in the Sermon on the Mount, we have to view adultery here as including all sexual immorality, whether it involves married people or single people. This text is not just for married people. All immorality is condemned by the seventh commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery. But Jesus went straight to the heart. Notice what he says in verse 27 through 28. He said, you have heard that it was said, to those of old, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Jesus said, we're not even to look with lust, which means, the word means lust means to look, to keep on looking, or to observe closely with desire. And so again, you know, both men and women can do this. The first natural glance isn't the lawbreaker. It's the second one that goes, that's the one that gets you in trouble. It's the deliberate one that feeds the impulse and turns that glance into a lustful look that Jesus said, that's the one that puts you in danger. You see, Jesus went behind the outward source of the sin. He didn't just deal with the outward. He said, he's going inward and he said, look, this is what's causing that. You see, there wouldn't be any adultery. There wouldn't be any fornication. There wouldn't be any un uncleanness of any kind without that lustful look. That lustful look, that secret unspoken desire makes us guilty. And then being guilty of this is so serious that Jesus said in 29 through 30, he knows if your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. If your right eye causes you to sin, cut it off. Or your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. So what Jesus said here shows us how deep his feelings were about moral purity and about protecting the home. The eye creates desire and the hand causes the sinful action. So Jesus basically said, don't look and don't touch. Now, when he said, you know, pluck out your right eye or cut off your right hand, he, he wasn't literally talking about maiming ourselves. 
What he was, what he was, was emphasizing is to control ourselves. In other words, do whatever you need to do to stop the act of sin. The, 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 the Solomon said in Proverbs 25, 28, Who have, whoever has no rule over his own spirit is like a city broken down and without walls. The word whoever has no rule is speaking of self-control. Whoever has no self-control over his own spirit is like a city broken down without walls. And, and again, we, saw, we see many times in the scriptures the importance of walls. The walls were there to protect the city from thieves and, and, and those who want to come in and do harm. And what the desert thieves, when they were roaming through the desert, looking for a place to rob or somewhere where they could you know, steal you know, things that they want, they would look for that city that didn't have walls. They'd say, oh, there, there's an easy target. And they'd attack that city that had no walls, and they'd go and they'd do whatever they wanted with the people, to the people, and took whatever they had. So again, that's basically the idea is that Satan knows if you don't have any walls, if you have no self-control, he knows how to come in and he knows the buttons to push and he knows what to do to get the best, get the best from you and make it the worst for you. So it's important that we understand that. Adultery has so many disastrous consequences for the one who commits the sin. And, and I'm just going to list a few of them, and the list goes on forever, though. But first, there's dishonor. First of all, you dishonor God. It brings great dishonor to the Lord God, and then to the sinner, and then, and then to those closely related to Him. Secondly, there's dishonesty. There's unfaithfulness. Dishonesty to God. Dishonesty to your spouse, to your children, to the family around you. Then there's disease. Proverbs 5.12 says, it says, and you, you, and you mourn at last when your flesh and your body are consumed. And this was talking about the heart in Proverbs chapter 5. And, and Solomon said, again, your flesh and your body are consumed in the end. And sexually transmitted disease, disease they come from immorality. They bring humiliation. They bring misery and they can even bring death. Then divorce. Nothing ruins a marriage so much as immorality. And if you want to keep your marriage together, you need to practice morality, uh, moral purity. Debt. Morality can be very, immorality can be very costly, spiritually, emotionally, as well as financially. We read in Proverbs 6, 26, Solomon said, by, the, by means of a harlot, the word harlot means a whorish woman, by means of a harlot, a whorish woman or a whorish man is, is it reduced to a crust of bread. Divorce costs big time. That's why we need to be, make, make safeguards, build safeguards into our lives. Like Job 31.1, he said, I made a covenant with my eyes not to look with lust at a young woman. David said in, one, in Psalm 101.3, I will set nothing wicked before my eyes. And that wickedness would be the thought or the, or the temptation of adultery. Because again, they're very wicked, they're very costly in, in many areas. So in closing, regarding these two, these two contrasts and these two um, uh, contrasts that Jesus is making with, with uh, again, adultery and anger. In his commands, Jesus gave here to avoid adultery. He says, avoid adultery. Purity is what's emphasized over pleasure. And that pleasure is temporary pleasure. Purity is always more important than pleasure. Not only that, 
Purity is the key to the greatest of all pleasures, and that is eternity, pleasure in heaven. You see, if we don't live a life of morality and purity, we will never see heaven. We'll never experience the greatest pleasure, which is heaven. Holiness is the way to true happiness. And it's when we're holy that we are truly the happiest. But you see, you have to, you have to put on uh, 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 holiness. You have to pursue holiness. Pers- uh, holiness is not going to pursue you. You have to pursue it, and you have to put on holiness, first of all, if you want to know true, true uh, happiness. Jesus, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. But unfortunately, not many people practice this priority today. The pleasures of life seem to have the number one priority in people's lives, and purity is not important to them. Living for God is not important to them. The Apostle Paul talked about people like this when he spoke to those who were lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God in 2 Timothy 3, 4. And you know what? If you're a lover of pleasure, you'll be a loser every single time. Adultery will only give temporary physical pleasure, but it destroys purity. And that will destroy true and lasting pleasure. It's rewarding for you to emphasize purity over pleasure because Jesus said so. Psalm 16, says, In your presence, Lord, is fullness of joy. At your right hand, God, are pleasures forevermore. The pleasures of heaven will be way better than any pleasures that we have known here on earth. And as we enjoy the Lord and we serve him, we won't be, have to be restricted or hindered by time or physical, weak, physical weakness or the consequences of sin and glory. So amazing and so glorious are the things of heaven. Paul said he, could even, he couldn't even express them. He couldn't even put them into human language, what, how wonderful the things of heaven are when he had that, that experience there. And so the thing to ask, is Jesus Christ the Lord of your life this morning? Have you accepted your inheritance? Have you accepted him? Are you making the most for, for, for his glory? Do you anticipate and think about being with Jesus in heaven? Is he the joy of your life today, the priority in your life today? Because if he isn't, when will you be ready to enjoy him for all eternity? And don't substitute the everlasting pleasures of heaven for the carnal and temporary pleasures of earth. Father, thank you for this word. And Father, we look forward to the rest of the contrast that you will make, God, that you will show us here. And Father, help us to not just take these things lightly, God but to understand the importance of them, God, the truth of them. And that's why Jesus explained them. That's why Jesus put such emphasis on these things here, Lord. Because they can cause us so much harm, God, so much destruction, so much hurt and misery, Father. And maybe these are the things 
that might be troubling you this morning and you don't know how to deal with them. You, you've tried conquering them, but you haven't had any success. Well, Jesus is the way. He's the power. He's the strength to get you through temptation. And if God is speaking to your heart this morning, this time is for you. Maybe you're flirting with the idea of an affair. Maybe you're even committing adultery right now or fornication. Whatever the sin might be or you have an anger problem and you feel you have the right to be angry. Jesus wants you to make things right. And he wants to help you keep things right. The worship team is going to lead us in a song of worship. And if you're tired of, of walking down that road and not being able to have victory over those temptations, those weaknesses in your life, Jesus came to give us life, and to give us life more abundantly. To give us the things that he has for us. To put away the old life, the old sins, the old deeds. If you want to receive Christ as your Lord and Savior. As we worship, you get up out of your seat. You make your way down the aisles towards the steps up front. And I'll meet you there. And when the song's over, we can pray together a simple prayer of faith.